Welcome to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome into Nothing Impossible, our weekly conversation about local innovation and uh, just new approaches, whether it's technology, I think that comes to people's minds first, but uh, socially, civically, all sorts of different angles, innovation comes into play. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan. And it's it's been a while since we've uh, been able to talk about innovation, uh, yet people have been innovating in the midst of pandemic, uh, finding new ways to work from home, uh, finding new ways to maybe they were laid off and finding new ways to be an entrepreneur all of a sudden. Uh, people are you know, working through this. Yeah, we're working through it. We're using uh, Zoom. We've used Skype in the past to bring our guests and our two co-hosts together on this show. And uh, today we're going to connect first off with Geosaurus, uh, T-Rex, two dinosaur (laughs) references there. But this is no dinosaur that we're talking about. It's the geospatial industry, mapping technology. St. Louis is a center for it. And we're going to talk with the head of the Geospatial Innovation Center at T-Rex. You know what I think is great about this? If we, we've gotten a lot of buzz and national attention for the work that's gone on at the Danforth Plant Science Center and everything that's happened in ag tech and biotech. Uh, and now the next cluster that's really developing is geospatial. Yeah, ag tech, biotech, fintech. That doesn't have to do with sharks. It has to do with financial technology. Yeah. Uh, and sports technology. We've had Stadia Ventures mm-hmm. on before. Uh, and geospatial, which I think people can relate to. Everybody's used their GPS to get somewhere. Pretty regularly, even if they're, uh, well, maybe not to get somewhere, but probably to check, track their packages that they've ordered while uh, doing a lot of e-commerce shopping from home. <laughs> as long as it's <laughs> dropped at the door, socially distant, right? Yep. Okay, we'll also talk uh, about some changes that have happened in the St. Louis region as it relates to how the food and beverage industry is staying uh, active and viable during this this pandemic. Uh, we'll talk to the folks from Mission Taco about their ability to have cocktails to go. This is another policy issue that uh, maybe doesn't get a lot of support at Jeff City, uh, but has what, but has direct impact on the viability of businesses in the region. Yeah, we've seen the unemployment rate in Missouri and across the country in so many. Beloved businesses have had to close, and uh, and those who have not have managed to figure out how to adapt to both the new health regulations and approaches, and also to what customers want these days. And uh, customers, if they love your product, you want to make sure it's available. It's been a little bit of a struggle for restaurants in the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, because of some state regulations that prohibited the sale of some of those products. But there's been an exception. You can get your margaritas, but for how long? Stay tuned. We'll find out. And then we're going to get into a very important conversation in the St. Louis area and across the country. Carol Daniels going to talk with the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson about a new announcement. You know, it just said that innovation is not just new technology, new apps, launching satellites to measure geospatial data. Socially, civically, we need new ways of thinking about things and approaching things. And so Carol's going to talk with uh, Reverend Wilson about the establishment of this new fund in the St. Louis area. Uh, Carol's here. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about. Michael, organizers of the fund plan to focus on healing and grief and strengthen the efforts of community organizers, activists, and residents who are working to help communities of color heal from the conditions created by systemic racism. It's innovation, 
and racial justice and social change. The St. Louis Regional Racial Healing Fund. Uh, You know, we have these systemic problems. And if we think about it from a business, when we look at businesses, businesses that have broken systems innovate to improve those systems. We have to view society through a similar lens. Our system is broken and we have to come up with new solutions for very old and systemic problems. So that's a that's a pretty pretty robust show we have today. A lot going on. There is so much going on, and we'll try to bring you a little bit of an angle on uh, each of it on today's show. So stick around for more Nothing Impossible right after this. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio KMOX. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you talking about local innovation, new frontiers, and certainly one of those is geospatial. It's been a specialty for St. Louis, one of our industry clusters for a while, Travis, and uh, T-Rex is really amping up their involvement in that industry. Well, and what a great evolution, no pun intended for, for T-Rex, but what a, what a great evolution of, of the focus within T-Rex. I remember moving to St. Louis back in 2012. The original T-Rex opened in the Railway Exchange building, probably around 2013 or so. And, you know, the move to Washington Avenue and then the, the growth and focus on geospatial, I think, just makes a lot of sense for, for not just that facility, but what that, what that space really represents and what we're looking at in the, as a future of St. Louis. And let's welcome into the conversation Mark Tatkenhorst. He's the program manager for the Geospatial Innovation Center at T-Rex Downtown. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about what's going on in T-Rex and what's going on uh, in ge- geospatial in the region. So thanks for having me. So Mark, give us a, just first a brief update of what this center represents and where is it in its life cycle? Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, we did a soft opening in, in January of, uh, it's a 16,000 square foot technology uh, incubator and innovation center focused uh, entirely on geospatial and related technologies. Um, we, the, the whole focus of it really is to create an environment where uh, geospatial startups can mature uh, with world-class uh, mentors and geospatial professionals to, uh, to really drive their business and, and, of course, graduate them into the community, which is uh, T-Rex's ultimate mission uh, as well, to, to give back to the economic vitality uh, of the region. Um, so we're at 100% occupancy. And like I said, we had our soft opening uh, in January, right before um, the, uh, the pandemic kind of shut us down. We, we um, transferred all of our uh, programming uh, to a virtual environment. Um, so uh, we're moving right along even in this virtual environment. Uh, we're looking uh, at the summertime to uh, maybe do a, a virtual uh, opening. And then in the fall, if um, everything permits, we'll go ahead and, and o- open the doors for um, a live grand opening. So, And Mark, how do you describe uh, for people, you know, you can simplify it down and say, well, every time your phone asks for your location, think about what it uses, you know, those situations when it asks for that. But how do you describe uh, to a layman what geospatial is and why it's so important, why it's such a good industry for St. Louis? Yeah, so um, that, that's a great question, and, and that's a question 
geo and uh, geospatial professionals get quite a bit. And and I'll be frank with you, it's um, it's an, not an easy uh, question to answer. But I kind of break it down uh, like this. So uh, any any type of geospatial data has some kind of locational attribute to it. So uh, whether that's a zip code, whether that's a coordinate, whether that's uh, a, a bounding area, um, and then along with that ge geographic um, entity, it also has an attribute. So at a specific location, um, there may be uh, an earthquake that happens, uh, some other natural disaster. There may be, um, uh, you know, uh, childhood, you know, poverty rates can be um, described with geospatial um, data. The, um, the the importance of it is um, it, it tells you where you are. It, it it can tell you where you're going, and it can tell you how you're getting there or what is happening um, at any specific time on the Earth's surface. So. Um, Obviously, um, people in this region um, uh, know about the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, uh, but, but it kind of frames their mind that geospatial information or geospatial technologies is something that the military um, or the intelligence community um, is focused on only. And um, that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. So, um, you know, w when you first talk about geospatial um, information or technologies, they think of military intelligence, safety of navigation, support the natural disasters. Uh, but the really emerging areas are the, those one, uh, the, the sectors that understand how it can make a difference in, in their business model. So, for, in for instance, the financial market, the health, uh, the health sector, um, insurance, precision agriculture, all of those sectors are gaining advantages by incorporating uh, geospatial information uh, and data into their, their business. And what kind of startups, uh, Mark, are you seeing attracted to this sector? So we're getting uh, all, all different levels um, of, of startups that are coming in. Any, uh, anything from companies that are focusing on indoor navigation to um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, that want to integrate geospatial information into their models, as well as drone companies um, that are uh, they're building capabilities and new sensors uh, to make a difference and advance geospatial technologies and, and tradecraft. And uh, for instance, I was at one of uh, the talks at SLU with Ness Sandoval uh, about the different ways that, you know, especially the conversation we're having now, how geospatial data can be used to evaluate uh, health outcomes or racial mm -hmm. disparities. What are some of the social aspects of this that can be used to, to improve people's lives? Well, certainly, um, you know, through the pandemic, um, you, you, you'll see a lot of geospatial companies stepping forward to contribute, uh, not only to locate where um, the uh, pandemic is hitting, the zip codes, the, um, the specific locations of the hospitals, being able to track PPE uh, distribution. Um, so so you'll, you'll see a number of dashboards um, that can locate the, uh, the incidents of the pandemic. Uh, but what maybe what is more important uh, as we try to track this through time is trying to do predictive analysis on where uh, areas may be the next hotspots. 
and so kind of, uh, you know, preparing um, the battle space, so to speak, on, you know, where this is going to go next, how, how can we reevaluate and move resources to better combat and, and tamp down um, the, uh, the, the pandemic. Um, and, and also, you know, all, all socioeconomic data has some kind of attribute that, you know, like I said before, gives a geographic coordinate, gives a, a zip code, gives a, a region. And so all of that data can be overlain um, on a number of different aspects to kind of give you a picture, um, you know, whether it's poverty rates, whether it's um, uh, uh, distribution of health uh, availability. Uh, to be able to kind of lay out a, a, a more distinct picture of, of what's going on uh, in a community. Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, some of the issues around the pandemic. I was talking to some folks I know in Sydney, Australia, and they said that one of the ways they've been identifying hot spots early uh, is to test wastewater streams, uh, because just like you can pick up narcotics and opioids and whatnot in wastewater, uh, they could also pick up the antibodies of uh, COVID in wastewater, and that allows them to uh, deploy resources to prevent hotspots from spreading. Uh, now, Mark, this, this data is, I mean, it's available because of satellite technology, but how much of it is really open source for the general consumer or even a startup to get access to? Well, um, of course, there's a number of commercial imagery companies um, that make their their data available and and um, it's av uh, available in a number of different um, formats. But um, there's, uh, for instance, the Regional Data Alliance here um, uh, at, associated with uh, University of Missouri St. Louis. They 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 do a lot of harvesting of uh, open source data and and making that available um, for for a number of different um, uses uh, within the GeoSource. One of the um, activities that we're leading toward is creating this unique environment for our startup community. We're calling it a data lake. And so this, what we're, what we're uh, working with um, various cloud-based vendors is to kind of lay out um, different data, different formats, whether it's commercial imagery, it's, it's vector data like open street maps or uh, full motion video. We want to create this data lake so that it gives um, our startup community the uh, availability to test their algorithms, to mature their company, um, and to grow for, for the greater uh, economic uh, vitality of the region. Uh, but there is uh, uh, an awful lot of open uh, source data that's out there and a growing number of open source software packages um, that um, can contribute to um, the advance of, advancement of geospatial technologies. I have an app on my phone uh, specifically to track my locations and it was nice at the end of the year to plot uh, my journey for, for an entire year uh, on a map to see how many places uh, I visited. It also helped me understand you know my how much how much my commute to work was, how far my commute to work was, what neighborhoods or zip codes do I spend most of my time and most of my money? So there are personal applications of this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the amazing thing, at least from a, a geospatial professional um, in, the, in the community, and, and we talk about it uh, quite a bit, is um, 
how much people don't realize in their day-to-day -day lives the the geospatial data that they're ingesting and using um, just just to 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 move through the day. It, it's amazing, but they never really tie that to the geospatial community and geospatial data uh, as a whole. But um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure that. Um, we would be able to, uh, to move through this world today without it. <laughs> and you mentioned the University of Missouri, St. Louis. We've heard so much about SLU. They've got the official relationship they've set up with uh, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. But between all of these companies locating here, these startups gravitating here, two academic institutions that are involved um, and then the geospatial innovation center at t-rex has received donations from large companies like bayer all the way down to one that you just announced from Siler instrument uh is it is it common for so many different pieces from academic to nonprofit to companies to government agencies spy agencies Everybody working together, everybody on the same page, helping to boost a city and an, and an ecosystem? Or is that something unique you think we have in St. Louis? Well, I will tell you uh, from my personal experience being uh, in this region for uh, for 34 years, I, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And, and to me, it really boils down uh, to leadership. Uh, from the beginning of, of this effort and as soon – I mean, let's not forget NGA uh, – uh, coming out and um, announcing their new uh, or their headquarters uh, gonna, that's going to be in North City was certainly the catalyst to all this. But uh, it was really the leadership and the vision of some really key members of this community, uh, Mayor Cruson, Otis Williams, Jason Hall, uh, Julie Finn, and of course, Patty, the, uh, Patty Hagan to, uh, to, to, to seize this momentum and help create this environment where we're in, in today. And so uh, it, it certainly is unique from the perspective that um, from government to academia to um, the startup community and civic organizations, everyone is, is really driving in the same direction and is very committed um, to this effort. And um, it's something that we uh, see every day where companies um, whether it's a military organization at the Pentagon to um, a company that um, is established but in a, in a different location, uh, we get calls every single day about what, what is what is this that's going on uh, in St. Louis? We'd love to be a part of it. How can we contribute? Um, and I, I think there's a real sense of uh, from from certain sectors that they feel like they're going to get left out because they see this train and this momentum moving forward and they, and they don't want to be left out and and you know the I, I go back to the leadership piece of this um, I mean the, what what they've done and what that core group did at the beginning to help get us where we're at it, it was it, it enables us to get um, the geoent uh, symposium, which is our Super Bowl for for this industry uh, here in 2023 and 2025, and that is absolutely unprecedented that um, that we're able to get that. Um, it's it's just um, it, it's it's overwhelming to to be in this industry for so long and to see uh, what's happening in this community. So. Well, Mark, you mentioned uh, earlier that um, in the fall, it looks like you might have, might be able to have a, an actual physical grand opening. Of course, the pandemic has 
has changed how people are working. Uh, people are working remotely. Can you talk to us a little bit about what uh, Geosaurus will look like post COVID and uh, the need for spaces like this? Yeah, so I think um, what we'll see is, I think we'll slowly get back. I mean, one of our big benefits, obviously, at T-Rex and, um, and, and the Geosaurus is bringing together and connecting geospatial community members, whether it's high school students to seasoned veterans uh, in, this, um, in, in this industry. And having those large uh, collaborative spaces for us to build our professional and personal networks has really uh, has really ad- helped us advance what we're, what we're trying to do. I think we're slowly going to get back there. Um, I will say that um, when we went virtual, um, we had uh, to me it was an unexpected surprise because we were able to kind of expand our um, uh, our audience and our viewership from you know just the local. Uh, community uh, to now we have, you know, people in the East Coast. Um, la- uh, last week or earlier this week, we had uh, a speaker from uh, Spark Geo up in British Columbia. Um, so we're actually in a virtual environment. We really, it gives us an opportunity opportunity to um, expand our message a little bit. And, and it gives uh, us an opportunity um, to a- try to attract those companies uh, to this region, whether it's T-Rex um, or elsewhere. So I, I think, I mean, as part of this whole pandemic, I think um, th- that was one of the upsides of this. Um, and then I think that, uh, you know, we're going to continue on this pace. And uh, I, I would you know, I'm going to be completely frank. I would absolutely love to get back to the days where we um, bring in are bringing a hundred people together and you know having these great uh, discussions and and synergy. Um, but to your your other point about looking forward to whether spaces like T-Rex, um, you know, their viability over time. So one of the things that we've been in discussion with a number of uh, our um, partners, strate- strategic partners, is that moving forward, a lot of large companies will not be looking for large commercial spaces. They're, uh, they've been given word that they'll be focused more on these uh, collaborative ad hoc spaces where they can come in and use for alternative work sites. Uh, they can set up, uh, you know, meeting spaces for uh, smaller groups and then continue to work uh, virtually where they can. So, I mean, that, that's another interesting dynamic that, that we will we'll have to see moving forward. Mark, what are the halls like at T-Rex these days? I know at KMOX, they're pretty empty. Everybody's <laughs> still working. They're just doing it independently. But uh, are a lot of the startups, both on the geospatial floor and in general, uh, is it is it feeling empty there or are a lot of folks still showing up? Uh, well, we're, I started back on the 18th of May and uh, just to open up and allow uh, construction to be completed and um, just to give people a sense of being uh, feeling human again. And so we started seeing it, uh, seeing a trickle of, of people back in uh, back in the offices. And uh, it, of course, you know, it's uh, we're a, a pet friendly environment and uh, we have uh, just um, 
just a buzz of activity every day. And so seeing it kind of a, a, as a trickle has been, has been different. Um, but, you know, every week that goes by, we're seeing more and more people feel more comfortable. And of course we put um, a ton of measures in place that, that, so that people feel like uh, that that's a safe environment to operate. And we've, you know, put sanitization stations everywhere. We have put plexiglass over a reception desk and guard desk. And so we really um, want to ensure people that we've created this environment where they can come back. And so we're seeing that. I mean, every week that goes by, we're getting more and more. Uh, we're, we're certainly not back to, to where we were uh, when we closed the doors on um, March the 16th. But um, w- we talked with our, our tenants all the time, and uh, they're, they're anxious to get back as much as we're anxious to have them back. Well, Mark Tackenhorst, the program manager for the Geospatial Innovation Center at T-Rex on Washington Avenue. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Anytime, glad to, uh, uh, any, anytime I get the opportunity to talk uh, T-Rex and Geosaurus and, and uh, the geospatial industry as a whole, I'm excited to do so. So thanks for having me on. And good job keeping that dinosaur thing going. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back. Well, there's been a lot of change for restaurants in the wake of COVID, and one is trying to get around government regulation that they've had to deal with. Adam Tilford owns Mission Taco Joint. So just in general, how's it been for you to adapt? I tell you what, we have, uh, many of the restaurant group, we've opened, I think, seven Mission Tacos now with Kirkwood in, in the last seven years or so, and I don't think we've worked harder than we have the past, you know, two and a half, three months with all of this. It's just... It's curveballs every day, you know, just trying to switch up operations, make sure, you know, staff's feeling good, everyone's, you know, doing things as safe as we can, um, you know, adjusting to a much lower volume of business, trying to make the financials make sense, dealing with PPP loans, stuff like that. So that's been interesting. It's been a, been an interesting ride. And the state government just announced that it would extend the exemption, allowing places to sell cocktails to go, mixed drinks to go, until December 31st. How important are these to you? Um, yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, you know, we, we saw such a big decline in sales once the once it was, uh, you know, we, we kind of got shut down on the margarita sales that, you know, we started having talks with, with our staff about, you know, did we want to stay open were they willing to take pay cuts, things like that? Um, and then once it came back, you know, our sales jumped back up 30, 40%. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a problem. So it was, it, it was a huge deal for us. Um, it, it also, um, we had prior to the shutdown, we had six stores that were open. Um, when we, when we went to carry out, uh, and delivery only, we only did that with four stores. Um, and then once the, margarita sales came back it allowed us to open up our other two stores again and get more people employed and so now it's extended through the the end of the year how do you feel about that yep oh, it's awesome it's great you know initially it was to may 15th then you know we're 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 coming up to may 15th and it's like all right what's going to happen and we're, we're pushing we're pushing and they extended it to june 15th and it was like all right great we're going to have to fight for this again as we get closer to that date and just the fact that they just put it out till the end of the year is just you know, it's going to give us a lot of comfort moving forward, trying to transition back to getting some, 
you know, dine-in service and stuff like that that will, you know, still be able to have those to-go cocktail sales to help keep us afloat, which is awesome. Adam Tilford from Mission Taco Joint. Up next, it's Carol Daniel with the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson on Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on St. Louis's News Radio, KMOX. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible. I'm Carol Daniel. The racial justice movement includes a focus on grief and trauma, wellness and resilience. Friday, three organizations came together to announce the St. Louis Regional Racial Health Fund, intended to transform the St. Louis region through an innovative and yet long-standing combination of community organizing and healing arts. The fund is a collaboration between the Deaconess Foundation, Forward Through Ferguson, and the Missouri Foundation for Health. Reverend Starsky Wilson is president of the Deaconess Foundation. He first explains the goals. Uh, First is to invest in the capacity of the racial justice movement and infrastructure here in the St. Louis region. Uh, We recognize that there have been many people working hard in healing modalities and community organizing, especially over the last six years. Uh, And that work needs support. It needs uh, rest. It needs uh, a pause and it needs strengthening. And so the goal of the fund is really to support the folks who are doing that hard work to get us closer to racial equity uh, and, quite frankly, to exercise some of the muscles of collaboration uh, for local philanthropy uh, as we seek to invest in systems change. Talk to me about what needs to be healed. Yeah, quite frankly, uh, one of the two things we talk about with the fund uh, is that we need to heal uh, from the community trauma uh, that uh, racial inequity uh, and systemic racism actually causes in us as individuals and as community members, as citizens. But then we also need to heal the conditions uh, that create that. So, yes, there's individual, relational, or communal healing, but there's also structural change that needs to happen in order uh, that this kind of harm doesn't come to us again. Uh, so in that case, we're really talking about the kinds of public advocacy and policy change that's required uh, in order that we're not in this situation again. When we think about this, you know, this broader issue of systemic racism that so many still don't understand how it shows up uh, in in communities. Yeah, it's difficult to see how it shows up um, uh, because we tend to default. Uh, on one side, we think about individual interactions. Um, is someone saying something that's inappropriate? Is someone... Uh, treating someone differently uh, in a store. Um, That's one thing. Uh, That's on one side. Uh, On the other end, we tend to, when an appropriate report comes out, uh, we hear about inequities. Uh, We see the manifest outcome of African Americans having less opportunities and thus having less accumulated wealth. Uh, What we miss is what comes in between, uh, is how we set up structures within organizations and institutions, or how our individual behaviors or biases may show up in the movement of our institutions and systems in order to get to those outcomes without us thinking about them. Um, So I think it's critical uh, for us, for number one, for the folks who are doing the work to help us to see that. Uh, which is tough work, it is isolating work, uh, to have an opportunity to reflect, uh, to pause, 
to heal from their own the traumas of uh, of the fact that people push back and tell you that you're not seeing what you see. Right, those folks actually need some space uh, to 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 chill out, to settle in, and to reflect, to be re-energized, to go forward. Uh, and uh, we need as a community to then uh, to spend more time both. Uh, studying these matters, but not just the outcomes and being able to quote the reports, but actually being able to dig in um, to learn behaviors, practices, and approaches to shift the policies that create our everyday interactions within our institutions. Uh, And the fund is going to try to help us uh, to build toward that. You said Missouri Foundation for Health, and it made made me connect the dots uh, and challenge and, and want you to challenge people to connect racism with health? Well, I mean, there are any number of things uh, that show up. Um, the stressors in a work environment, um, the microaggressions that have to be managed by, let's just take black women uh, in the workforce. Uh, a black woman with a college degree uh, has health outcomes that are proximate, if not worse, than a white woman uh, with a high school diploma. And that has to do with um, the additional stress, even though she may, sh- may have health care, even though uh, she is uh, educated, even though she may have a better job, uh, the reality is that everyday stresses and microaggressions in a community and in a workplace uh, diminish our health. And so that comparison tells us something about uh, what needs to be shifted in the conditions and environments in which we work. Um, and so, and the, the, the framing around this as a healing fund and a healing approach uh, seeks to get at those realities. Um, so, um, so I, I think uh, one of the things is that, um, and as much as we know, there are social determinants of health that have to do with what's around us in our neighborhoods, uh, how housing is structured, uh, what opportunities we have, what education we have. Um, we also have to know that uh, the conditions that create that are the ones that have to be addressed. Clearly, so many people are, are coming to this, ha- however they have come to it. But we do know that there's some some sense of, of shock and surprise, you know, connecting these dots. How do you, you've been in this work a long time. Do, is that even anything you stop and pause to think about that, that so many, so many are, are coming and saying, wow, it, it is bad? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think of times like this, uh, whether it's uh, this moment that we find ourselves in uh, nationally, uh, because we spent, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds watching someone's life force literally choked out of them uh, on video, and that created a national uprising in a moment, Um, whether it's this or whether it's other things that happen in local communities uh, that um, stoke uh, our attentions. Uh, I really see these, uh, whether they're moments of protest or moments of recognition, as opportunities and on-ramps for people who may not have been paying attention to these types of things before to be activated. And then we've got a responsibility, if we want change to happen, to create tables, spaces, and networks for those folks who have been activated to then be organized and mobilized for long-term activity. And that requires the kind of infrastructure uh, that the Racial Healing Fund will seek to support. How important, and, and I'm looking at the um, the different things that can be included, uh, partners that, that are going to come to the table uh, that you hope to fund, and and one of those is to, you know, to help, as, as, as is written here, to help people express grief and to, um, and we've talked about, about healing. 
talk to me about the importance of and the and the need in the black community to to focus on grief. Yeah, quite frankly, I think people misinterpret uh, some of the mass gatherings that are happening in the streets across the country uh, as agitation only. Uh, they are first and, first and foremost opportunities for people to come together uh, across cultures to grieve. Uh, some of that is grieving the loss. Uh, in this moment, we should note uh, an opportunity to grieve the loss of 100,000 plus people whom we've lost to COVID-19 uh, with its own disproportionate impact on black communities. Um, sometimes it's grieving um, the loss of the idea and the ideal of the American dream. We have a sense of American exceptionalism uh, about who we aspire to be and who we have understood ourselves to be for so long, uh, that we are a country um, of laws, uh, of the rule of law. And when we see, have seen that break down, um, that is an emotion that has to be processed. When we raise children to say you can be whomever or whatever you want to be, and we see that they get cut down in a moment, um, when they're on their path and their way to doing what we have called them to do, um, then we've got to grieve the loss of the aspiration uh, that we have placed uh, in that system and community um, that seeks um, that, that we have then lost. And so I think those are all things that we've got to heal from. We've got to grieve. We've got to recognize the connection between individual and community trauma. We've got to engage more people in community around systems change work. We've got to prepare people to organize for healing justice. And we've got to build local capacity and align resources to make that to happen. Um, it, it's helpful to note um, that this isn't a new thing for us and this didn't happen in the moment. Right? One of the final and most clarion calls of the Ferguson Commission report was to establish a 25-year managed fund to invest in racial justice infrastructure and racial equity infrastructure in our region. Now, the Racial Healing Fund doesn't approximate that ambition, but it is a beginning where more than 10 uh, local funders uh, with some national partners have come together to say, we hear the community. We hear those 3,000 people who said, we've got to invest in this. We know more than five years later that it's past due, but we're going to begin again today, uh, and we're going to invest to make sure that our community's future has the resources for racial healing. And so who should apply? Is this organizations who are doing the work or people who think they want to do the work? I mean, who, how will that process, who should apply and how will the, the determinations yeah. be made? Yeah, the first thing people should do right now uh, is they should help us to design the process. Uh, one of the things that we learned is that uh, part of the agency and autonomy of the community coming together to design processes for their own healing is healing in and of itself. And so Forward Through Ferguson uh, has uh, begun to launch a process of community engagement where we want residents, we want healing practitioners, we want community organizers, we want child advocates, to connect with Forward Through Ferguson through their website and sign up to be a part of the community design process that's going to be happening over the next few months because the community will decide how these funds are allocated. Um, and then we believe by the fall we'll be in a position to say uh, with that community engagement done and with a perspective on what's going to be funded and whether they want to uh, invest in organizations or individuals, then the community will say, 
why don't you all come? These are the things that we're going to fund. Uh, and, and the community will decide. Those residents who sign up for the design process, the community organizers and healers who are a part of that, they will make all of the funding decisions. So if you're interested in helping to design this process for racial healing in our community, connect with Forward Through Ferguson at their website, forwardthroughferguson.org, and sign up to be a part of the design process. If you're an institution who's interested in investing in racial healing, then we invite you to connect with us at Deaconess. Uh, we are just, we're holding the funds for the pool. Uh, folks can connect with us at deaconess.org, specifically speaking to our director for partnerships, uh, Keisha Davis, uh, and we will get them engaged with the pool of funders uh, who are working together uh, to make this collaborative work. And we'd be excited to have any community institution that wants to invest in it uh, to do so, and as many community residents as possible to help design it and make the funding decisions. That's Reverend Starsky Wilson, president of the Deaconess Foundation. He says with a matching grant from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, $1.4 million has already been committed to the work. You can go to Forward Through Ferguson's website for more information on how to apply for grants and to donate.